0: This is the <laughs> diversity meeting of today's date, which is December 13th, Friday the 13th. So listen carefully.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what you just did. And by the way, I love the energy in the room. I love the laughter. I love listening to all that. So I'm not going to go in any particular order here, uh, but I would like to start actually with the second question. And how did you determine who to approach for the different indicators on the bingo sheet?
2: Well, some of it was based on familiarity. Okay. So I knew there were people who would know certain
1: things. Okay, so you you relied upon, let's say, prior knowledge of people that you know, and maybe you knew a a little bit about them, and used that, okay, good, good.
0: How else, Meg? I started with the people who are sitting near me. Okay. And then branched out from there.
1: Okay. Good. So when you branched out, when you branched out, Meg, if I may just expand a little bit, how did you know who to approach about whether it was about celebration of Quanto or quinceanera or whether they've been threatened, you know, because of their religious or cultural beliefs and background? How did you know who to go to for what
2: questions? I didn't. I just went to the next group and asked if I can join their group, and asked if there was any information that they could share with me about themselves. Okay,
1: so a random, random mm-hmm. selection.
0: Anybody else? Shirley. Uh, some people I just I knew them, so I felt comfortable going up and asking them. Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? Etc. I think people that knew me knew that I speak another language, so they came up and were like, "Oh, we know you. They did." Blah blah blah. So yeah, it was about you know familiarity, and then also if I know the person. I felt comfortable asking them questions, and some people I knew would know stuff.
1: Okay, good, good. Anything else?
0: Nora? Well, i basically sat here and talked to George, and I think between the two of us, we could probably cover all (laughs) (laughs) time. But besides that, if I had been walking around, I would have felt pretty comfortable asking anybody in the room, because this is a, we are starting here with a very culturally sensitive group, which is why we're here, but I'm sure even within
1: that, there are things that we can learn. Yeah, I hope so. So so part of doing that kind of exercise is what Nora is talking about, and it's creating that safe environment so that people feel comfortable to even approach someone they don't know and they've never spoken with. If we were to do this in, in a room where literally no one knew each other, What approach do you think they might take as to who I ask certain questions of? The way they
0: look. Yes.
1: Yeah. Sometimes we have a particular, I'll call it a mental model, right? Which is not my term, it's the term by Peter Senge um, that he used and uh, is uh, one of his five disciplines. If you've never read the book The Fifth Discipline, Um, People look at me as though I'm crazy when I say I actually like that book and have read it multiple times. But mental models, which are assumptions, sometimes they are stereotypes that we have about people. Um, And so the questions we ask people, particularly people we don't know, we all, by the way, we all make assumptions, right? If you're a living being, you make assumptions, you have assumptions. Um, So we we don't exist in a world where any of us can can say, I don't have any assumptions about anyone or about any religion or about any ethnic group because we all make assumptions. When somebody enters, when somebody walks through the door, we make assumptions about them based on their appearances. And so when you do this kind of activity, let's say in a room where people really don't know each other, that's kind of what they rely upon because they don't have the prior knowledge, they don't have the familiarity. And so that's part of the conversation that when we talk about culturally, cultural sensitivity or cultural awareness that we need to have is how would, I know, um, how would I know if I should approach you and ask you if you celebrate Kwanzaa or not, if I know nothing about you. So sometimes physical appearances lead people to draw wrong conclusions about individuals. Um, how did it feel to do this kind of exercise?
0: I think it was fun because it was really fun to realize like what um, a rich background or experience that so many of our colleagues in the room have had. Yes, yes. Anything else? Well, I, it was also fun for me because we were all engaging in the same activity, I think with the same sentiment and the same goal. Yeah. So it was a unifying.
2: Good, good. Thank you. Bonnie? I just found some very interesting that I was learning about, that I was hearing, and also f- finding ways that we have in common, you know, other ways that we are similar and it was nice to talk to people. I could not have paid you to say that. <laughs> that <was>
3: perfect. <laughs> you know, if I make, could make a recommendation, you can watch The House of Fog on Netflix. It's a great movie and you will see a lot of the things what you're talking about.
1: Right. Thank you. The Thank House. you. Foster. 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 So part of the part of the activity is really to help bridge some gaps, right? You learn things about people that you did not know. It's an opportunity also to possibly seek out and talk to someone you may not typically speak with or have interactions with. If I were doing this in a classroom depending upon the age of the children, of course. If they're younger children, you might want to give them those sticky, you know, uh, um, colored stickers and say, if you find one person for an indicator, use a blue sticker. If you find two or more, use a red one. Or you could use different color to, you know, um, uh, to vary the activity. Um, But also, it is an opportunity in the classroom for children who may not otherwise sit together, may not otherwise interact with one another, to have a chance to speak with one another and reach out. And, and the other part of it is, so if I'm doing this in a classroom with children, I would want to make sure that some of the indicators are very relevant to the culturally diverse students within my own classroom. Because imagine a child who celebrates Kwanzaa, and that's on there. That child, it gives them a sense of belonging. Right? and a child who uh, has just gone through a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, and there's an indicator on there. It also opens up the conversation. Right? So for a child who just had a bar mitzvah, for example, and a child who just had a quinceanera, so it's not only that there, there are commonalities in those two rituals that are very much culturally based, but it also allows children, allows adults, to see what, what Dr. Cohen so eloquently said, that you begin to realize there are more commonalities than differences. And so it, I, felt, I feel that it's a, a risk-free way to start the conversations and to also help children have a sense of, of belonging. Um, were there any indicators that made you feel uncomfortable
4: I didn't experience this, but had someone said that they'd been threatened with physical harm, that would have taken the activity in a different direction for me. It was very positive. We were really having very positive conversations about good experiences, mm-hmm. but that would have been a very different direction, and it might have made me feel at least very sad,
1: or, yes. you know, upset. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay. So I don't want to keep, you know, going through these questions yet.
0: Dr. Hines? Oh, no, yeah. well, I was just going to briefly say, I can see how somebody may become somewhat anxious if they haven't experienced many of these things and then they're starting to realize, I really haven't done much or I haven't been exposed to a lot. I, I okay. can see that potentially happening. Okay, that's a great point. I happens here, but a, yeah. I, I can see that Yeah, after. that's
1: a great point. So as a teacher, I would want to be very selective again with what yeah. I... Um, include on there, and that would also mean getting to know my students, right? Getting to know them, getting to know, um, learn about their culture. Um, It could also be, you know, a name like Wafa, right? It's not a typical name, but it could be a very um, um, honest conversation between a teacher and a student, so what can you tell me about the name Wafa, what does it represent? Where you know, so it opens up the communication, and also it allows for those important relationships that need to be built. Because really, when when we talk about cultural sensitivity and cultural awareness, it's really about building relationships.
0: Nora? I could see the opposite happening too, with a with a child or even potentially an adult if they realize that they're the only person in the room who had one of you know some of the experiences more than others, but you know. I'm the only one who's been threatened with physical harm because of how I look or what I celebrate, or um, I'm the only one who celebrates Kwanzaa. You know, whatever the th- I'm just looking at the list mm-hmm. quickly. Um, a name with a religion. You know, like it's just it could be unless it's handled properly with the right population. You know, it's it ha- it has to be in the context. You yeah, know, I wouldn't worry about that here, but you know, I think absolutely.
1: I I um so I'm going to share two stories with you and throughout the presentation I'll, I'll share some other stories um, a couple will be funny and some won't be so funny but a few years back I was asked to um, speak to five different classes at New Hyde Park High School about cultural awareness cultural sensitivity and I thought um, as I was preparing for the presentation and by the way I will simply say to you, I don't consider myself an expert on this topic, but what I do consider myself is passionate about the topic. So in the individual who asked me to speak to, um, to these five different classes is someone I used to work with and has an awareness of my background and thought that I would be somebody good to speak with those students when I started to think about how do I approach the subject, because the worst thing is to go into class after class and you get no participation. And you spend the whole day and you haven't really affected anything. So I wanted it to be uh, an open discussion. I wanted it to be comfortable. So what I did was I actually um, obtained pictures of different people from different cultures, male, female, different settings, and so forth. And what I did was I displayed the pictures. And in some cases, a couple of the pictures had writing from other languages. And I simply asked the students, as I pointed to each picture, tell me a little bit about what you see in the picture and tell me what comes to mind. What was really fascinating to me was all the mental models that came out. So I'll give an example. In one picture, I had a, um, uh, in one picture there was a uh, a woman dressed in traditional Islamic um, uh, clothing and she is standing outside of a store, and the uh, top of the store, the front of the store, had writing in Arabic, and in the store, there is a gentleman sitting in front of the the window. So the woman is outside, he's sitting in front of the window, and he has kind of a pensive look, he's looking out the window. And when I asked the students what comes to mind, what I heard were things like, she's afraid of him so she won't go inside, she's submissive and all of this and it was really, it was actually a very good conversation. Then there was a picture of a, of a man um, in a desert in Africa and I had pictures of all, you know, as many different, um, I guess cultural backgrounds as possible and I, I allowed the students just to share with me and with one another what they see, what comes to mind and so forth. And when we began to have the conversation about did you consider that this woman might actually be the store owner and that that man might actually work for her. It started to shift the conversation a little bit. But in one of those classes, what happened was there was a young girl who I believe was from Pakistan and had the hijab, she was wearing the hijab. And she had been pretty quiet for most of the period. And at one point when she finally spoke, she talked about how um, right after 9-11, right after the attacks on 9-11, she had been attacked by a group of students. She was you know, quite a bit younger, of course, and she had been attacked by a group of students because she was associated with. So it helped, so to go back to Nora's point about a child who may have been threatened, whatever, sometimes it has to be done in a safe environment. It has to be handled with sensitivity and, and of course um, um, professionalism but it could actually allow a student to be able to open up about something that they may otherwise not be so open about. But I also want to share a funny story. When we were talking about how did you know who to approach and we talked about physical appearance. So I, I want to say maybe about 10 years ago, so obviously I was 10 years younger, so I was uh, you know, 25 then. No, 10. So, uh, my husband and I went to the Smith Haven Mall and we went into a store and of course i'm looking at shoes right i think that that transcends every culture <laughs> and as i'm looking at the shoes uh, a woman came and stood next to me and we just started you know we just started chatting and we're talking about the shoes and whatever and so she turned to me and she said to me you're very nice and very pretty. You must be Italian. (laughs) So I said to her, oh, thank you, but no, I'm not Italian. She said, yeah, you're Italian. (laughs) Honestly, this is, so I said to her, okay, but I'm not Italian. So she said, you must be Italian. So I said, why do you think that? She said, so she started describing some features and I said, well, I'm not Italian you're Greek. <laughs> and it went on that way. And So I decided to kind of play along, and I wouldn't easily tell her what my background is. So she guessed Greek, Spanish, and, and a few others, but certainly didn't guess what my background was so at one point she literally kind of like hit me she said to me i know you're italian <laughs> and so i said okay but i'm not <laughs> and so um she said so what are you so i said well i'm of the human race you know So playing along playing along, she said, oh i know but which one <laughs> which one so needless to say i i played along and at one point um i started to walk away from her and uh jokingly i went back and i shared with her you know, a little bit about what my background is. So she, her response was, well, you don't look it. And I said, so what does, that, you know, what does that look like? And it was really a very nice conversation. I wasn't at all insulted or in any way. So as um, I started to, um, to leave, she, um, pardon me, as I started to leave, it was around the holidays, it was mm-hmm. around this time, so I turned to her and I said, Bon Natale. And as I walked away, my husband is watching this whole thing. My husband's not getting involved. So as I walk away, I heard her Oh, wait, pardon me. I'm sorry, I forgot one thing. When I went back to her, I said, so I just need to ask you. So if I said to you that I am Italian, Would that make me kinder, nicer, smarter, prettier? She said, depends, what part of Italy you're from? (laughs) (laughs) So so at that point, I said to her, Bon Natale, and and as I'm walking away, I heard her mumble, I knew she was Italian. (laughs) So as my husband and I are walking away, he said, you know, this could have been a Saturday night skit. So, but it, it's just an, uh, 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 it, it's funny, right, it, it's a funny story, but really at the same time it highlights how we draw conclusions about people, you know, based on their, on their appearance. Mr. Um, Borda?
3: but Dr. Gross would you say that, and of course this is not 100% perfect, that in this country, in the United States, there is, um, what I have found personally, this tendency of asking where are you from or whatever. I mean I haven't spent, you know, my background, I spend a lot of time in Italy, I'm an Italian citizen by marriage, you know, by by being by birth. And in France. And I really have never been asked. And I, I speak Italian with a with an accent. So like where are you from? Uh you know, uh I mean I'm pretty sure that the, those events do exist, but I haven't you know, even in strangers, in a gallery, I in, in talking to, I mean, I went to a store in Ferragamo just because, because it was so hard in Florence. I ne- they never said, "Oh, where are you from?"
1: Well, I guess every you know, if, everybody has different experiences. Right, but right? I'm
3: saying I think so. in Europe there is a more internationalism uh, feeling. Oh, I see. That you know, I, they might at some t- point when they become very comfortable with you might say, you know, um, so. But otherwise, it's like they don't think about it.
1: I was what you say,
3: asking, ask me where I'm from. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> It's kind of a funny thing, because people said to me, oh, they always
4: think I'm Italian, and I'm like, no, I'm Greek and Armenian, and they're like, oh, but you look Italian. I guess that, I uh-huh. do my DNA, I'm 20% Italian. <laughs> 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 maybe
1: I need to do mine, but <laughs> maybe it's <laughs> <the whole
4: time. laughs> Sometimes uh, it's a I lot closer to, to home. home. <laughs> I went to school in western upstate New York, and woke up one night with my roommate, face to face with me because she was looking for my horns. She had never met a Jew before. I never met
0: like that in a school in went New York. Buffalo. So I mean- Did you go to Buffalo? Yeah. That's where it's I Jewish. had, they were looking for my Jewish. horns. <laughs> oh, how can we share a room with you?
4: All kidding aside. Yes, all kidding aside, it was very was so strange, strange. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it it comes a lot closer it's to the home. It's a long time ago. And my family is extremely mixed culturally, um, I'm first generation, and uh, religiously, I have Mormon cousins, and so I never understood any of this, yeah. you know, us and them.
1: Thing. Yeah, so you know, I, I, you know, the, the, um, so you highlight an important point, somebody who doesn't know you or doesn't take the time to get to know you, would not know that you have different right cultural backgrounds. So it really goes back to the assumptions that I think people make, whether it's by a name, right? when people hear WAPA, they may make certain assumptions about who I am, they hear the name Elise, they may make certain assumptions. Sometimes it is by appearance, um, but I think it makes the point of having those conversations and opening up the lines of communication even that much more important. And uh, again, particularly in a classroom, where if we may have a child who is perceived to be different, the child may not necessarily be different, but may be perceived to be different. That's why it's important to have those conversations so that children get to know each other and they get to know each other beyond the, you know, the appearance or what they believe is true to be about that individual. So when we talk about culture, and we know there are different layers of culture, we're talking about the ways of living. The, the beliefs, the behavior, the customs, values, uh, more um, um, norms, and um, all of that. But a culture also, um, the reason it's so important to address it in, a, in the classroom is that it does affect how people learn, how people problem solve, how people um, even communicate and convey information. So, so um, and we're, Edward Hall came up with um, the analogy of the iceberg, right? When we look at the iceberg, uh, at an iceberg, normally there's a little part of it that's above the water. So the above the water line is the part of culture that's very explicit. It's things that, that are visible and things that we can view. We may see a, uh, someone dressed in different clothing. We may see a dance or there may be a literature from a different culture. Those are things that are visible and we can um, uh, know um, about a culture. I think these things are important to me, in my perspective, to me, they help to humanize an individual. However, at uh, and just below the waterline are the implicit understandings that are not as tangible, they're not as easy to detect about different cultures Um, And they have to do with um, eye contact, whether we make eye contact or we don't make eye contact, and different contexts in which we make eye contact or we don't. Conversational patterns are also pretty much driven uh, by culture, facial expressions, nonverbal communications, And then of course there's um, the biggest part of the iceberg, right? The largest part of the iceberg is usually deep in the water and that's where we have the, um, the hidden culture or what I like to refer to as the deep culture. Those are things you would not know about someone unless you've been a part of that culture for many, many years. Like for example, my husband. So I will share with you my background for those of you who don't know it and for those of you who do know it, I'm sorry if you've heard this many, many times before. Um, So I was born and raised until the age of 10 in the West Bank of the Middle East. And those of you who know anything about the West Bank, it has forever been fought with wars. So my family and I immigrated to uh, this wonderful country and to Nassau County when I was uh, about 10 years of age. And um, I am one of 10 children, we're the Brady Bunch Plus, because we're five girls and five boys in my family. And so when we immigrated here back in the, um, you know, around the mid-70s, um, things were, I guess, pretty tough in, or, um, with respect. There were, at that time, if you remember, there were a lot of um, plane hijackings and things of that nature. And so when we came here, Um, And obviously, my parents brought us here because of, you know, uh, the political world in the Middle East, the wars and so forth. By the time I came here, I lived through two wars. Um, Truthfully, I don't remember the first one, the 1967 war. I don't remember that very much. I was very, very young. But I do have memories of the 1973 war, which was a year before my family and I came here. Best decision my parents ever made, um, hands down. Um, But I can share with you that um, coming from where we came from, um, and at the time when we came to um, Uniondale, my siblings and I, particularly those of us at the elementary level, there was not a formal ENL or ESL um, program at that time. So we were put into regular classes and basically told learn English. There weren't many students, in fact, other than maybe one or two in my school, I don't recall any other Arabic-speaking children in the school. So communication was very, very difficult. Um, And I remember as a little girl, you know, I, I always held teachers in such high regard and I always thought teachers know everything. I remember going up to my teacher and speaking to her in Arabic because I figured she knows everything. Mm -hmm. And I remember her just going like this, no Arabic, no Arabic. So communication was very, very tough. Um, And we, I will say I had some of the most phenomenal um, teachers and I was very uh, fortunate in that I came from a very loving um, home, you know, wonderful parents uh, who are no longer around. But I can also tell you that there were experiences where um, those of you who are my age or, you know, remember when the, um, there were American hostages taken by the Iranians. And my family and many of my relatives, we used to get death threats. And at that time, it was before cell phones, before caller ID. And when you get a call at 2 in the morning saying, you effing this or you dirty get out of this country, we planted a bomb under your home, coming from where we come from, you take that seriously. You take that seriously, you don't think that, well, it may be some kids playing a game or some, you, you really take it seriously and to this day, um, there are times I, you know, I, I can't, um, that the fear in my father's face is very hard sometimes to, you know, to think about because here we came to get away from the violence, to get away from, and so, there were, there were threats made. Um, and by the way, I, I just want to make sure, I, when I share this, believe me, I don't share it as woe is me by any means, because I do believe one person's experience is the experience of all. And so I don't share that in terms of woe is me or to anyway make myself out to be a victim. I don't feel that way at all. Um, in many ways, those experiences, and there were many, you know, over the years, I can tell you, um, for me, it really helped me to become more aware of how do we treat others and um, do we judge those by either their appearance, their religion. So in many ways it was helpful for me, even though it was very painful, and as a child I would not have thought what I think today, you know, as a grown uh, as a grown woman, but and certainly when I became a teacher in Uniondale, where I had children who were uh, culturally, you know, culturally diverse, I honestly think it made me more compassionate, more sensitive, more aware, and so I tried as a teacher whether my students, um, when I first began teaching in Uniondale. I had students from many different cultures. I had some students who were Arabic, I had students who were Greek, I had students from Haiti, from Jamaica, so I really had a beautiful array of students and I was always working toward being aware of, am I treating all my students the same? And are there things that I could learn about them that could help them, that want for me to connect on a deeper level with them because I I honestly believe as teachers, the most important thing that we can do is first and foremost connect with our students on a human level. And um, one of the mantras that I use often is, children don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And I really believe that to my core. And so, but it did make me much more aware, much more sensitive. It also um, allowed me to be more sensitive to some of the experiences that my students were facing whether those experiences were experiences of poverty in some case, whether they were experiences of racism. And so all of that, so I share those stories again, really not in a way um, you know, to, to act like a victim because I don't in any way consider myself that, but I do think in many ways it helped me to be a much better teacher and a uh, better educator. So when we get to the what I mentioned earlier, and that is the biggest part of an iceberg is really what's below the water. And so the same is true of culture, that deep culture, that hidden culture. We would not know a lot of this about anyone's culture unless either we've lived it um, or have been a part of it for a long, long time. As I said, my husband, and I joke and say, my husband is from a completely different culture. He's Brooklynese, you know? <laughs> so, But I joke about that. I don't mean that in any way in a derogatory manner. Um, but. Um, or if you've studied a culture, like you know, really deeply, deeply studied uh, a culture, although I think nothing, nothing is more um, educational than experiences. So my husband and I obviously are from two different backgrounds, and we've been together for a long, long time, almost three decades, and I can say that he has easily now integrated into my culture and so forth. So I'm able to, um, part of um, cultural awareness Um, it's really the, the, I would say the highest levels of cultural awareness um, are adaptability and integration. Integration is the highest level. It's when you're able to go back and forth between different cultures and adjust to the the cultures. So um, in in my church um, that I belong to, my church is mostly made up of people from my own you know cultural cultural background. I will actually say that my parents were actually the two people behind our community getting its own church many many uh, many years ago and so there are certain I will say customs, behaviors and so forth that I adapt to when I'm in my church versus when I'm you know when I'm elsewhere and so that adaptability and integration, is what we ultimately want for our students. And, and so um, we want to make sure that part of our job in, um, for our students, particularly from different backgrounds, is to make sure that they can easily exist within both the school culture, but then also the home and or community culture within which they live, because there are some things they have to adapt to um, when they're in either of those two cultures. Um, This is what cultural responsiveness is. It's really being about becoming culturally competent and being able to to understand that there are variations in cultures, but those variations um, should not Dictate how we how we address a child or how we um, you know we treat a child, and that the commonalities are greater than the differences. So when we talk about culturally responsive education, who are we talking about? Well, we are talking about children and groups from different ethnic backgrounds, but also children with disabilities. This is the definition of, that John Coverdale um, came up with that diversity is defined as different from one another along one or more relevant dimensions. Uh, Neurodiversity is about um, individuals who who have neurological differences, and that includes children with autism and or Asperger's. It could also include um, uh, individuals with uh, Tourette's syndrome. So all of these are included in what we're talking about. It's not just about race. It's not just about ethnic differences. It's not just about religious differences. So I felt it was important to highlight this. And that is, um, this is not what culturally responsive education is. Being culturally responsive does not mean that as an educator, you have to be a master of every culture because that's not realistic, right? I'm certainly not an expert on on all cultures. I'm not. I have my own cultural experiences that I can draw upon and, and share, but I'm certainly not somebody who would consider herself to be an expert about every culture. What I do do is take time to learn about different cultures. Um, of course, one of the best ways is through travel, but that's not always you know, uh, possible. But there are different ways. I think our students are our best teachers when it comes to that, and they can teach us about their cultures as long as we're open to it. Being culturally responsive is not about having a bag of tricks to use with particular groups of, of students. That's not what it's about. Um, this is a misconception that poverty is a culture that came out of Ruby Payne's work. And in fact, um, some of you may remember when Newt uh, Gingrich took um, a stab at the presidency, he actually alluded to it when he spoke about um, that, chil- that that families from low income, urban, inner, inner, inner urban city schools are um, do not have a strong work ethic or a belief system and that, that's part of their culture. He was equating poverty to culture. Poverty is not a culture. And then this is another misconception. There are individuals who believe that only teachers who are ethnically or culturally diverse can be truly culturally responsive. That is not true also. We all have a um, you know, a responsibility to be so. So what is the goal? <coughs> the goal is to really reflect on our own mental models um, and in order to recognize that the, how important culturally responsive education is, particularly <coughs> for our students and families. So some of the strategies that I'm going to share here, some we're doing and some we, we will be working on as we move forward. So professional development, we have sent, um, um, so the good news is so many, so many workshops and conferences are now being offered um, both on Long Island and uh, nat- uh, nationally on this topic. As Shirley Sapiro mentioned before, this has become one of the State Education Department's goals. Um, uh, culturally responsive education. So we have afforded opportunities for our staff to go to different workshops. In October, I actually presented at the Long Island ASCD conference on this topic and there was a team of administrators that went with me and I was not the only, I did one session, but there were many, many workshops that took place that day, many of which were on the topic some of our administrators came to my presentation and then of course I went to others during the time that I was not presenting. Um, high expectations, I, um, it's very important, it doesn't matter where children come from, it doesn't matter what their backgrounds are, I think it's very important that we set high expectations for all of them, whether they're English language speakers or not, um, there should not be an assumption that because a child comes from a different background that he or she is less capable. And children know, you know the expectations we set for them. Uh, they know it from um, what we convey verbally, they also know it from our nonverbal communications. Um, develop cultural sensitivity. Again, that the differences hopefully um, are not dividers, but they're uniters. And then building stronger connections between educators and students from different backgrounds. Um, Another important thing to recognize is that everything that we do, everything that we teach is culturally responsive. The question is to whom? Is it culturally responsive? Is it culturally responsive to all of our students or just a, you know, a small sample of our students? It's important that we value diversity and that we convey that, uh, again, verbally and non-verbally in every possible way. This is something that, um, you know, I guess as a district, we will, um, um, not to imply we haven't worked on it, but we'll continue to work on. I think it's important that as people join our team, that they are individuals who truly value diversity and and express that. Um, Because we, you know, as a North Shore Nassau County district, we don't look like all other North Shore Nassau County districts. It's important that we maintain positive perspectives. And, and, um, and I think this is what's really most important. Look at our own, assess our own behavior, um, and know that our attitudes are sometimes influenced by our own, by our, our own cultures. Um, the learning environment, I think it's always important that students see examples of people who look like them. Uh, whether it's through literature, whether it's through posters that we display in the classroom. know, um, I will tell you how Like sometimes a small thing can make a big difference. I made culturally responsive education a goal of mine for both this school year and, and the last school year. And in the last school year, I remember having a conversation with um, Jamie Nolan who heads our registration department. And Jamie has multiple roles, so part of them are very academic based and and some are not. We started to talk about how can this goal fit into central registry. And I said, well, we have a welcoming poster, right? We have it in English. What if we had that poster translated not only into Spanish, but other of our high frequency languages? And we did. And they are now displayed in central registry. And about a month later, she called me. And she said we had a father come in who I believe was Korean. She said he lit up. When he saw the poster and the language was his language, he actually uh, made a comment about it, very positive comment about it. And so sometimes it's the little things that we can do that can make a big difference. Um, Giving students a sense of belonging. The number one need for every human individual is to belong. You know what the number one fear is? No, it's not public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> the number one fear from a social up. rejection. Rejection. So if this is our, the most basic and most important need for any human being, then we need to do everything that we can to try as much as we can to make people feel uh, that they belong. Um, okay. The wait time.
0: How many more minutes do I have, Shirley? As much as we well, yeah. Okay. We, we started late. So. Alright, so we'll be we here till five. one. Hmm? We'll be here till five? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll get community comments. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um so I'm not gonna yeah, go no. through every every one of these. Yeah. Um but and I'm happy to post this by the way, so that you don't have to try and remember um, all of this. Um this one I thought was important that we give students, and and, and many, many, many of our teachers do this uh, on a regular basis, so it's giving our students opportunities to work collectively together, and I think being deliberate in some ways about who we group together. Um, Sometimes we give children choice, and that's perfectly fine about forming groups and who they feel they want to work with, and that's a good practice. Sometimes we may need to be a little bit more deliberate in how we group our students, So that students who normally, again, would not seek each other out, can have an opportunity to come together and work around a common assignment or a common project and have an opportunity to get to know um, each other. It also gives children a chance to learn about each other's cultures. And so, um, you know, it, it can't happen without open communication. Um, address language barriers. I think that we're as a district, we're really working very hard and have been working very hard on this. We're doing much more translations, both in written form um, and also you know uh, at meetings and, and events. Um, I know Manor Haven has a translation kit that they use and are using much more frequently. I just purchased another one a few months ago for the high school and it came in very handy last week when we had uh, Tom Swazi here. Um, He met with um, a a large group of our um, English language learners um, at Schreiber and we were able to provide a translator who who translated everything he said into a microphone and children who wanted the translations were able to use the headsets. And so it's another way of helping people feel, you know, included. Um, Understanding other cultures. I think the key to understanding any culture or any difference is really being open to it. Um, it starts with that. This could be like a simple thing that we can do, is have a display of different flags. Imagine the child looking up and seeing their, the flag that represents the, you know, the, from where they came. Um, again, it doesn't have to be these big um, elaborate changes. Sometimes it could just be the visuals that we have in our schools. This is something I'd love to work on more, getting guest speakers to um, celebrate multiculturalism and to share with us. And it could be some of our community members um, who might be willing to come in and speak with our students and share about their cultures. Everybody knows Manor Haven every year does a, uh, a cultural, cultural studies. Cultural
2: studies. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Bonnie, for those that, that may not be? just to give an overview? Um, I, I believe we're going on, it's either year 29 or 30 that this has been going on at Manor Haven School and we select one country a year and we celebrate the history, the cu- culture and we transform the school into that country. Very often it's a country that's represented in our school. We've done Japan a few times, we've done um, China, uh, we've done Latino countries. It's really been um, just one of the highlights This year we're doing Norway because a group of teachers have visited Norway and they want to share what they've learned. Um, But the best part about it is when we do a country that's represented in our school, the parents come out and they just share their culture with such pride.
1: I think that's the key word when I have attended I know in January you do, the is it January? It's the last do it? week of January. It's the last week of January where you do a whole week of celebration.
2: That's what it is. But the
1: activities sure. are not just one week. I just really want to highlight that. It's not just the one week of activities. It goes on for months, am I correct? The, the planning
2: months. goes on for months. Okay. And then the extensions as well. So we always connect with schools. Last year we had a school in Kenya and the pen pal relationships, they just went on for a, a few months after that. And now we're looking into establishing connections with schools in norway
1: when i have gone to your celebrations i think the word pride is really what comes Mm -hmm. to mind you see the parents and the students involved um uh, uh, you know again the the children from those cultures and there is just (coughs) a sense of pride um and um so so one of the things that um i started thinking about uh while back is we use the Danielson rubric for our um, teacher um, observations and evaluations. And for those who don't know the process, um, there's a pre-observation conference that is held between the evaluator. And the evaluator is either uh, the building principal, assistant principal, it could be a director, it could be central office. Um, So obviously pre before the, the actual lesson is taught. And then there's another conference after. And so as I started to look at the rubric, um, I started to think about how, what are some ways that we, can, um, that we can have the conversations about culturally responsive education that tie directly into the observation, and of course that includes lesson planning and all of that. Um, I just took examples of uh, the first four domains of Danielson's rubric, And the ones I've highlighted in red, they're not exclusive, they're just examples of some of the indicators that an evaluator and a teacher can have a conversation about that could be tied directly back to culturally responsive education. So part of that, so obviously in order to have, you know, a culturally responsive classroom, you need an environment um, in the classroom that is inviting, that is welcoming, and everybody has a sense of belonging. So these indicators really lend themselves, I believe, beautifully to having those conversations with the teachers or or any any of our staff, um, you know, ahead of time and certainly after um, an and, you know an observation that tied directly into what we're um, you know working toward accomplishment. Accomplishing. Same thing is true of domains three and four. So, domain three instruction is the pedagogy. It's exactly how the lesson is being delivered, and then um, you know, domain four that has to do with you know extending beyond and going above um, and beyond, and also um, assess things that are not necessarily evident in a single lesson in a single classroom observation. Cherokee okay. um, Holly um, came up with eight elements of a culturally responsive learning environment. So learning environment is just one of the guiding principles for culturally responsive education. Before you leave, I will give you a copy of this. Um, Gary Howard um, came up with seven guiding principles for culturally responsive education, and one of them is directly tied into the learning environment. So Cherokee Holly came up with these eight elements, and If you notice, he includes technology in there. So, what does that mean? Well, digital um, digital um, content, right? There's so many resources that are available now that allow us to bring digital content into the classroom that has elements of culturally responsive education. It could be it could be linked to literature. Um, when I was a classroom teacher many many years ago. I would say that the literature, most of the literature, particularly for young children, mo- um, for the most part, the characters in the book were pretty much the same. Most of them looked the same. We are now living in a time where um, all, just about every culture is, um, is recognized in the literature. There are so many, and I'm going to give examples of a few here. There are so many books that are available nowadays to educators where no matter where your students come from, you're bound to find some literature that um, is representative of that child's um, background. Um, so here are some examples. And the list, believe me, is probably 10 miles long. And I try to select ones that represent different ethnic and different um, um, groups of people. Um, Keeping in mind that the definition I shared earlier about what diversity really is, some people may consider single parent homes to be part of diversity. And so we know now there are very non-traditional families that exist. And so there are books that talk about, there is literature available about non-traditional families there are books, if we have students from Korea, there are there are books that we can use in our classrooms that support that. Um, this one, you talked about pen pals, Bonnie. This one compares the lives of two pen pals, one in America and one in India. And then we have um, this one, Noah Chases the Wind, is about a little boy who has autism. And he's a very curious little boy and, and um, is fascinated by the wind and wants to know how the wind works. So no matter what the diversity is within our classrooms, there is in, in today's um, day and age, we're fortunate in that there is a wider range <coughs> of literature that we can use to support it. And I want to end with uh, Nora. Did you? No, uh, sorry. Wanted to end with um, um, these two quotes, um, and, and one is that hope has a human face. I always say like, you know, when it comes to, to our students, whatever whatever the background, whatever, I think it's always important to remember, and it's not just true to students, it's true for all of us as well, that um, behind that culture, behind that religion, behind, behind that diversity there's a human being. And it's so important for us to remember that and to remember that um, children come to us with many different experiences, some that are really wonderful and positive and some that are that may be more challenging. And so um, this is where, like this is the place where we need to feel that they belong, this is where um, they need to feel secured and this is where they need to feel that I am accepted because of who I am and for no other reason. That we, you know, they, we shouldn't expect for them to have to change who they are in order to, um, you know, to fit in. And um, this uh, quote by Gary Howard, um, who is the same individual who came up with these seven principles, I really love it. It's the cultural competence of adults is intimately connected to the achievements of students. And that is very, very true. And then my favorite slide, which is thank you in every language I could um, think of. So Thank you for your time.
0: I just, one thing I just wanted to say that um, ask whether you could um, put these slides, you could have the slides put up on the Absolutely. university um, page what? on yep. the website. And we might actually, when we post the podcast, put a note next to it that there are slides that go along with it because it'll be easier for someone who's listening to it to follow the slides. Okay. Not a problem. Thank you. So Alicia? Okay. Uh, now we know who sings in the choir. <laughs>
4: And the strategies. Uh, I feel you need to go just beyond the teachers. What kind of strategies do you have to implement
1: with parents? So that's a really, really good question. In order, you mean for them to become more culturally? Yes. You know? So, in a conversation with one of our principals a few days ago, the principal shared with me that. Um, for that school, they will begin to have some, um, they've started preliminary conversations and will be doing some workshops with parents on language we use at home. And I think it is so important, the language that we use at home, um, because our children repeat and they learn what we say and how we say it and about whom we say it. Um, I will tell you personally, I had a rule in my home for a long, long, long time. And I shared this once before actually with a parent where I do not permit any derogatory comments or jokes about any group whatsoever. That's just always been a rule in my home. Um, Because I do believe sometimes people think saying a certain thing it's a joke. But if you're that individual, it's not a joke. If you're the group being demonized in any way, shape or form, it's not funny. It's really not funny. And so I think the advice I would have, one is um, be open yourself, right? Um, Be open to others. Be open to those who don't look like us. Be open to those whose religions are not like ours be open to those whose food is not similar and, and and so forth. So that's part of it. I think what we model for children is what they learn. And it's also what they accept, not only about themselves, but about others. But I also think language is so critically important. Um, it, um, just as an example, if I'm going to a, the doctor, I don't refer to the doctor by their racial or ethnic background. I don't say I'm going to such and such a doctor. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I just say I'm going to the doctor or I refer to the doctor by the doctor's last name. And so I'm very conscious of language that I use in my own home. And so I think that's part of conversations that we have with parents. How do you refer to others? And, and how, do you, how do you treat others? How do you interact with others? I, in my own family, having so many siblings, I like to say we're like the United Nations because you know, every, my siblings, everybody married different people and it's just, it's been so much more enriching for me and for my family. Um, so I think, I think that's part of the conversation that we have. I think having literature in your own home that doesn't necessarily represent who you are, I think can also help. Um, but you know, much of it has to do with attitudes and beliefs, and those are conveyed in so many different ways. I
4: just was going to add to just one little thing. Um, I think it's about teaching respect, and it's I all about respect. I think it's very lacking, and I think that stems from the home. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether you agree, disagree, believe, or don't believe in whatever that other person is you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. You do have to speak to them and treat them with respect. Well, said. and that.
1: You know, it's, um, as I mentioned before, it's not only in my own family, but I've been, you know, very, very fortunate in my life in that um, outside of my family, you know, my friends, my, just, I just have such, like a wide variety of, of people in my life who are from different, different groups. And I've always looked at that as enriching, you know, my own life. And no matter where people come from, no matter, again, what religion, what nationality, what socioeconomics, what Everybody wants to be treated with dignity and respect. That's a common language for all. So well said, Elise, and I I agree 100% with that. How much of this have
0: the teachers
4: and the administrators in our district been
1: exposed? So I've done done the activity. I've done the cultural bingo. uh, I've done it with a team of administrators, and we've had the conversations. Um, and, uh, and many have done, you know, a good amount of work either within their own schools, and, and Bonnie, if you want to share some of the things that have been done in your school, but I don't want to put you on the slide, as have the directors. Um, one of the things that um, we worked on, and actually I have to give credit to uh, Rachel Gilliar, she made the recommendation last spring when I did this presentation at Curriculum Committee, when we talked about literature and having a variety you know, of literature, she mentioned the book fairs that the HSAs organize, and um, she said why not make sure that at the book fairs that there's also a variety of literature. So I had that follow up conversation with the principals who had it with the HSAs and there was more literature included in the book fairs, but also in addition, our own libraries our school libraries have a much more diverse literature now than than before. Um, I have to say, uh, Ryan Maloney, mm-hmm. some of you may not realize, in addition to technology, he oversees our library media uh, specialists and, and centers, and he has worked very closely with the librarians to increase the amount of culturally diverse literature that we have. So this is ongoing work. As I said, we have sent, um, teachers and administrators out for training. And um, so, we, you know, we will continue continue to do that. But there are things that have happened at the building level as well, building levels as well, that are not directly related, related to me.
2: Well, first I wanted to say I, I appreciate hearing your story and I take your story with me every time I walk into an ENL classroom and I see these are our mm-hmm. next teachers, our next doctors, our next administrators, <laughs> assistant superintendents. <laughs> so thank you for sharing your personal story with us. Very, very- I'd also um, like to share some of the work that we did, did and it started at the beginning of the year with the book All Are Welcome and that was the first book on your list. Um, <clears throat> we I bought the book for every classroom, they shared it and um, now our school has a visible message. It, it was just unveiled yesterday um, and I sent it to your email so if I could share it with um, the group maybe before we leave or when you think the time sure. is appropriate, um, our entranceway, which could have been a very scary place because it's our man trap and it was done for security vestibule. reasons <laughs> Yes, our best of you yes of course but now it's now it's a welcoming beautiful space when you walk in the building so I took pictures to bring to the committee so I can share it with you and share the message
3: just want to say two things and best of you you know we had a
2: We've been talking about this for a long for time. For a long
3: time. I mean, I, I, Dr. Cohen has been very, very on point about it, but I kept hearing for so many years that this was going to be the man trap. Just think about it, man trap. And, you know, I personally do not care what they call it, but it's really, if we are talking about being sensitive, but now research. I want
2: you to see what our best yeah. of no, looks she like. She did it on purpose so we yeah. could no, have a no, no, conversation. I, I, let
3: me tell you, Dr. Cohen has always made an emphasis in the meetings that I have had with her to call it a best Yes,
2: but it was, such, I was, my point was it was such a negative space right. behind it, and now it's right, a very right. beautiful space, and I'll share that with you. Thank right, you, for thank you. That. And
3: the second thing that I would like to recommend, recommend to everybody, and it's going to be my one I gift for Nora, is this Are you book. going somewhere? Uh, no, uh, Sarah, you would like to this book, My Kind Among the Whites, came out this year and is by a Cuban-American writer, she's a professor of English at Lincoln, uh, Nebraska, she comes from Miami, she's also a contributor to, um, to the New York Times. It is not an easy book to read, uh, let me tell you, and I, I'm glad that I met a parent that that she can, she has some knowledge about this. I did went to uh, she made a presentation at Columbia uh, University, and it was uh, I do recommend it to read it. And again, it's difficult at times to read it. And you can talk thank about you. some of the issues that happened. I, thank you, thank you, Mr. Thank you. I did.
1: I did just want to mention two other really quick things that I I forgot to mention in there. And that is, I think one of the things we also have to keep in mind, and and I'm drawing upon my own experiences here as well, is um, when we talk about our um, students from, again, different backgrounds and and, uh, uh, immigrant backgrounds and so forth, I think one of the other things that we need to be sensitive to is as they are trying to adapt to, you know, um, uh, different expectations, different cultures, different, practices, it's also important to also keep in mind that sometimes they're struggling even within their own home. So just as an example, you know, coming here very, very young, um, and as I mentioned before, I, I had the two most loving parents anybody could ever could ever ask for. Um, but I do remember as I got older, there were certain things that, um, you know, you're taught certain, um, um, Practices, you're taught certain beliefs, and as I got older and started kind of forming my own, you know, beliefs and so forth, so sometimes there's a struggle even within the, the, the child's own home, in terms of um, trying to live between the two cultures. I, you know, I will say that, and I will also share that I was the first girl in my family to get married, and I did not marry somebody from, you know, my own culture. That was a little bit of a struggle. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind because as our students and our families may sometimes be struggling just to fit into the new culture that they've come to, they're also sometimes struggling with you know, within, within their own. I like to say that I broke the barrier you know, um, in my family. And, and I will also, just to clarify, just say that you know, one of the things I realized as a young adult was that um, you know, my parents were such loving, accepting people that when I wanted to marry somebody outside of my own culture, why did that become a problem? And what I realized was that they were struggling as well because they were trying to hold up. It wasn't about not respecting other cultures or not liking other people at all. It was about desperately trying to hold on to their own culture while living in a different culture. And I remember at some point you know, having a conversation with my parents and saying, you understand I came here when I was 10. And so the adult I am now has certainly, you know, grown in so many different ways. You're trying to have me live completely in our culture, but in a whole different country. And I think that's when they began to realize that they're trying to hold on to their own. And that's not a bad thing, by the way, but I just think it's important for us to keep that in mind about our own families and about our own students. And you know,
0: what you're describing though too, I mean, even just as a mother, and holding on to a child as a child from the same culture, even as a yes. American go. born, <laughs> with New York born children, holding on to them as kids and seeing them grow and find their own way, and ha- you know, and lifestyle. So combine that with a cultural change in a new country. It just potentiates yes. that sense of potentially of, of loss or strife or you know concern yes. or yes. all. Of Series of a book. Right. Just uh, another book
1: for white folks who teach in the hood, which is Christopher, Dr. Christopher Edden.
4: What is it? Uh, for white folks who teach in the hood.
1: Okay, thank you.
4: Uh, which is an excellent view on code switching, which is what a lot of our students need to do. And, and uh, even uh, our local students code switch all the time. But when you were talking about uh, adaptability, mm-hmm. you know, that's what you're talking about, the co-switching that they have to do within their own home mm-hmm. and then within the school. Uh, we just, so you know, we just finished up Multicultural Voices for this year, both the middle school and the high school, and we did storytelling where they ended up doing a moth-like story about their mm-hmm. culture, about a moment, and some of them were as innocuous as, how do I get into my locker, mm-hmm. and who's going to help, and who, so.
1: Right. Really Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Happy holidays. Thank you, Thank you. Holiday. <laughs> so so Thank everybody. So Thank, everybody. Thank, Thank you, for girl, coming. Thank you, Wapa. And we will see you in the new year. Our next meeting is it it's it's an evening meeting. evening meeting. And that will hopefully be yeah. left in January. won't we'll
0: get snowed up. from 7 to 8 p.m. in the uh, Paul D. Schreiber Teachers Cafeteria. So if you're listening to this podcast and you weren't able to come today because you were working or had something else to do, if you are available
2: <laughs>
0: on January 15th, 7 to 8 p.m., please come. Thank you. We should read
1: that book.